So we'll be in Colossians today um, as we begin talking about the, the gospel. Actually, we continue to talk about the gospel because I would say it's been kind of a major point throughout our time together. But today we're going to talk about enemies. In wartime, enemies, um, you have to have a disconnect to be able to hate your enemy, to be able to fight your enemy. However, when the war is over, it's really hard to fix the relationship. Because in order to hunt and kill and fight and want to destroy someone, you have to get to the point where you hate. And so reconciliation is really difficult out of warfare. And we know stories, we've seen stories about people that have been reconciled, whether it be to their, their captors from a POW camp or uh, soldiers that they fought against. And we see those stories and we have seen those stories and they're impressive. But sometimes, sometimes the hatred goes too deep or the offense is too great and reconciliation appears to be impossible. Here's one example of that. November 11th, 1918, World War I comes to an end. They signed an armistice, which means both sides agree to stop fighting. A few months later, they would sign a treaty. This war, maybe a forgotten war now in light of World War II and other things, this is a war that was started because there were all these secret treaties between all these countries, and because of all these secret agreements, one lone gunman, an insane man, killed a member of a, of a family, of a royal family, and this led to a snowball that led to what was then called the war to end all wars. Killing 20 million people. Setting the stage for the Spanish flu, which would come a few years later and actually kill three times that much. All of this was because of World War I. At the treaty signed in June of 1919, they began the, the process of what were called reparations. This was the, 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 the allies, which America was on the allies' side. The Germans, the Ottomans, the Austria-Hungary Empire were the central powers. The central powers had lost. And so because they had lost, they were going to be paying back and taking all the blame for this intricate war that started. The Germans would pay in the neighborhood of $89 billion in paying back. Not only that, but they had all sorts of restrictions on them. These restrictions were so tight that those other two empires, the Austro-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire, they ceased to be countries. They broke up into smaller countries because the, the price was too steep. However, the German people were very, were stick-to-itiveness. They, they stuck with it, and it actually decimated their country. A few years later, the Great Depression happens. For Germany, the Great Depression started almost eight years before it started here in America. It was so bad in Germany because of the, 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 the economic sanctions and all of the requirements that people were literally dying in the streets. We never saw that here in America. We saw some pretty awful stuff. But literally dead bodies in the streets was not something we saw. But even though all these reparations were paid fully by the Germans and by the central powers, it was not enough. France and England and Russia all wanted their pound of flesh. And once they got their pound of flesh, they wanted some more. So even though the price was paid, the forgiveness never came. And it's generally understood that 
this was one of the major things that led to World War II, this animosity between both sides. Because really all it was was it put a pause on the war and then restarted it again in 1930. And that's what we see. So why didn't this reconciliation work? Why, why was it that the central powers, Germany mainly, and these other allied powers, why is it that they kept butting heads? Well, it's because reconciliation never happened. Reconciliation is the, the fixing of a relationship. It's the rebuilding of a relationship. And right here in this passage, we see that the most important relationship is that our relationship with God needs to be reconciled. So the first thing we have to have to have reconciliation is you have to have a split. The second thing is you have to have both parties agree to reconcile. And there's two things that have to happen. One, you have to have sufficient payment. So whoever it was that did the wrong thing has to give enough money, goods, land, whatever it may be, to then get the other side to have sufficient forgiveness. Meaning, we forgive, we for, we're, we're done, no more animosity towards you. And so this is what didn't happen in World War I. In World War I, they kept asking for more. Oh, that wasn't enough. We need more. And they never once were willing to forgive. And so today, we will see that we need this. We need to be reconciled to God. There must be a sufficient payment to God so that he can give us a sufficient forgiveness. Because a partial forgiveness does us no good. A partial payment does us no good. It must be a complete payment, a complete forgiveness in order to bring us to God. And this is what the Bible, what the gospel says has happened, is that forgiveness is available and it's sufficient. That the payment was sufficient is the gospel. So here's our big idea for today. Believing the gospel produces reconciliation with God. Believing the gospel produces reconciliation with God. Now, when we hear gospel, this is a word that you should be familiar with. We've heard it before. I mean, there's a whole genre of music that's called gospel music. We teach people that you have to go and preach the gospel. But what is it? And how does it affect our lives? Well, at its base, the gospel is Jesus came and died for your sins. Live the life that you couldn't. That's the gospel. But there's so much more to it than that. And we need to get to where we can not only just get that this is a thing, but that it applies to our entire life. And so today, my goal with this is to let you see that this reconciliation is not just a simple one and done, but it's a continual thing. And I'll show you why that matters and why that's a good thing. So the first thing we have to ask and we see it answered right here in our passage, is who is this Jesus? Who is he? Verse 19 says that Jesus is God. So that's our first thing we have to get right. you got to get who is Jesus. He's not just another guy that came and kind of started a religion. He's not another person that died for a religion. He is God. Look what Paul says here in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of deity was of God was pleased to dwell. So what does this mean? What means Jesus is fully God, 100% God, 100% man. I know the math doesn't work, but this is divine math, and it goes together. This is the divine mystery. We could spend a lot of time on this, and there are countless books that do. But what we, what we need to get here is that 
God, instead of dwelling in a temple like he did in the Old Testament, or one of many gods like many false religions have, we say, and what the Bible says is that God himself came and dwelt with us in Jesus. And that word dwell in the Greek means to tabernacle or to tent. Literally, Jesus was the tent of God on earth during his time here on earth. This means that Jesus was perfect. And this is going to play into that first part of reconciliation. In order to have a sufficient payment for our sins, we must have a sufficient Savior. The Trinity teaches that God is three persons in one being. It teaches that he, that is what God is like. And it doesn't make sense to us because we're, we're one person in one being. And so, yeah, of course, not understanding God is going to be pretty much par for the course. If you understand your God, then you're equal with that God, and that God's not God. So why doesn't, why doesn't Paul just come out and say, okay, you know what, you know, you 21st century people, you want us to cut right through it. This is confusing. Why doesn't Paul say Jesus is God? Wouldn't that have solved all the problems? Because isn't that the debate? Is Jesus God? Well, this verse could be interpreted so many different ways. No, this verse is saying Jesus is God. So why doesn't Paul say that? Well, here's why. In the first century, it was a smorgasbord of gods to choose from. You could have a god for anything. I mean, you, you imagine it, there's a god for it, right? The, 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 the Romans had gods borrowed from every culture they'd, they'd, they'd conquered, and then they made up some of their own. I found out yesterday that there is actually a god of the dung heap in, Roman, in the Roman theology. I, how do you worship that god? I don't even want to know. I didn't, that, that's just a Google search I'm not going to do. So a first century person hears Jesus is God and they go, of course he is. He's just like Ares and he's just like Mars and he's just like Vulcan and all those other gods. So Paul didn't want it to be that there was any chance that somebody would say, oh yeah, we'll add him to our pantheon. He's good. Instead, he says, the fullness of God, the God, the one and only, the God in the Old Testament is here. And actually, we ask, we ask you know, Paul to say Jesus is God. We would have the same problem today, wouldn't we? There's a whole wave of thought in our culture that says you can be God. And so if we say Jesus is God... I can hear people on a television station or a channel or a radio thing and say, well, you can be God too. Just imagine the inner you as God. Bring out the Jesus consciousness in you. We hear that. So we're not that far off from where these, these Gentiles and these, these, these uh, Romans were at this time. We don't get that. So Paul wants us to see that. He says, Jesus is fully God, which is, praise the Lord, this is why it's good news. Because if there is no fully God sacrifice, there's no heaven, there's no grace, our sins are still in us. Some false teaching about Jesus teaches that Jesus was not fully God. Others teach that he was a, the firstborn, i.e. not God, and that all he did on the cross was get us a head start towards being a one that can go to heaven. But that's not what it says here. What it says is he is fully God. And so therefore, his death on the cross was sufficient. It met the first need of reconciliation, which is a sufficient payment. It's not Jesus gets us halfway and then we got to go the rest. 
He gets us all the way there. Praise the Lord. So Jesus had complete righteousness. Now, righteousness is one of those churchy terms that no one else uses, unless you're listening to the Righteous Brothers. That word righteous is not something that we use. I know there was a time when that was an exclamation like awesome. It was like righteous, right? But that may have been only Bill and Ted and and a few other people there in the 1980s and 90s. So maybe that's just me. But that word righteous is not a word that we use. We don't describe stuff as righteous. What it means is it means rightness with God. And so if we're righteous, it means we're right with God, which means we can enter into relationship with him. So wait, is is God like stingy and he doesn't like certain people? No, God is pure, unadulterated, holy perfection. And if we bring any of our imperfection into his presence, his perfection destroys it. We're gone. It's not that God's sitting back going, well, I only like certain people, and only if you're this way can you be in my presence. He's saying, you can't be in my presence. I'm so pure, unadulterated pureness You can't be in my presence. So Jesus is the only righteous one, and he can be in God's presence. He can walk in and be right there. And we'll see why that matters here in a minute. So we're going to go a little out of order, okay? Uh, Maybe I'll apologize to the Apostle Paul when we get to heaven. But we're going to do verse 21 next, okay? So we're going to, because 19 and 21 are the two people that are at odds in this reconciliation. You've got Jesus and God, and you've got us. So let's figure out who we are in verse 21. And I'll spoil it right now. What we are, who we are, we are sinners incapable of coming to God, or sinners incapable of having a relationship with God. So just how Jesus is the full rightness with God, we are the full unable to be right with God. There is nothing that we can do that will bring us into righteous relationship with God. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, don't get hung up on that you were once. Okay, Paul's talking to people that are already believers. So if you don't know Christ, if you're not found in Christ right now, this describes you. For those of you that are in Christ, this was you. So we need to see how this reconciliation plays out. So look at these three things. We've got alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. Alienated means separated, cut off, estranged, divorced, not together, gone. So before we were reconciled, we were alienated. Alienate is an, it's an ugly word, isn't it? It implies, it implies butting of heads. It applies animosity. And ultimately, it implies that there is need for reconciliation. There's something not right. The second thing we see is hostile in mind. That word hostile is the word hateful, hateful in mind. See, when we were unbelieving, we hated God. Now, we may have play, you know, said words here and there about the man upstairs or some supreme you know, Santa Claus-like deity. And even to this day, we'll see people do that. They have no problem with believing that there's somebody up there that might control something. But when that somebody up there who might control something starts telling them what to do, they don't want anything to do with them. They're they are animus towards them. They hate him. And so that's where we would be. That's where we are before we are in Christ. And then finally, we see the evil deeds. Rotten fruit comes from rotten root, right? So if you are not in Christ, you're going to do evil deeds. And it's not like the world's sitting around going, well, I'm going to go do evil. Their, Their tree is evil already. They're just doing what they do. And so even the word evil 
is not really thrown about much in our culture. Because our culture says, don't judge me, live and let live. My lifestyle is my choice, right? All of these words, there's no judgment, no evil. We reserve that for Hitler and Osama bin Laden, but everybody else is not evil. Paul says, no, your actions are evil, and they were evil, and they will continue to be evil if you don't have Christ. So Paul is making it clear, we need a fix. Our payment will not meet the needs to get forgiveness. It's not a sufficient payment. If anything, the things we're doing is making it worse for us in reconciliation. Both sides need to see the problem, and we have to see this is where we started. If we don't see that this is where we started, we don't see a problem, we don't see a need for God, and we just go about our day. William Barclay said, never once has God said to be reconciled to man. It's always man who must be reconciled to God. We are the problem, and we are a continual problem until we're in Christ. So we have the two offended problems parties. We have God and Jesus, and we have us. The problem is, is we are enemies with God. It's not just, we're not just indifferent, but when we side with the world, when we are not in Christ, we are actively opposing God. And so that also leads to this lack of reconciliation. But praise be to God that God sends Jesus. So what did Jesus do is the next question we have to ask. And we see this in verse 20 and 22. He reconciled us to God through his death. He came to earth. He died in our place to make things right with God. But I'm going to show you another place where it says this. Romans 5, verses 10 and 11 will be on the screen. For if while you were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. That word if there in verse 10 does not mean, does not mean well, maybe. It means since. Since you have been enemies, you need a reconciliation. And we see this today. We see this in our, 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 our interactions with the law. I hope I don't trigger anybody here talking about, you know, uh, speeding tickets, but if you're driving 70 in a 55 and you get pulled over and you get a ticket, now you have broken trust. You are at enmity with the state. The state has a reason to see you as an enemy. Something needs to be done. The police officer writes you a ticket. You go home and you forget, forget about it, right? And then does the state go, oh, they must have meant to pay it. No, you get a nice little summons that says here's a date with the law, at this courtroom at this time. And until something is done by the person who offended, nothing will be fixed between them and the state. The state is not friendly. The state is offended. It must be settled. So it is with us and God. We broke his laws. We belittled his glory. We neglected fellowship with him. We broke promises. We've rejected his right to lead us and ultimately, we are fighting against him if we're not in Christ. So long before we ever arrived on the scene, praise be to God that Jesus came and he paid the price. The infinite traffic fines of our sin has been paid for. Now, I love what verse 11 says in Romans 5. It says, you now received reconciliation. The only thing you got to do is receive it. 
It's a free gift. That's what grace means. It's a free gift of reconciliation. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't suffer. You don't pay for it. You receive it. And that word receive, it also means believe. We need to believe in it. And so as believers, as followers of Christ, we have to believe the gospel continuously. And we have to continually believe it because it affects everything that we do. Not because now I believe and I have to act it out, but because when I believe it, I will act out the way I'm supposed to. It'll happen. Look at verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 19 talked about how Jesus was fully God. Now verse 20 says this is what Jesus has done. I love this. In verse, verse 19 it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and then through him to reconcile all things. That word pleased actually is in there twice. And I don't know why our translations don't necessarily see it. It's connected to the pleased to reconcile things. So not only was God pleased to come and be on earth, but he was pleased to to reconcile us. God gets joy when he fixes things between us and him. When he fixes the relationship that has been broken by us. I mean, is this not a sweetheart deal? We mess the situation up. God comes in and fixes it so that we can have a relationship with him. Jesus, that uniquely perfect lamb who came and died the perfect death for us to fix our relationship. Because usually it's the guilty party. It's the person who's done something wrong that goes, yeah, I messed up. i got to fix things. God is the one who's offended, and he steps in to fix him. And this is throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, God is the offended party, and he's the one that steps in and fixes things, not the other way around. It says in verse 20, reconcile himself to all things. Isaiah 9.6 says that Jesus is the prince of peace. He will quell all the rebellion. And what this means for believers is we are reconciled right now and we get relationship with him. If we're not in Christ, we will not be reconciled, but we will submit to him when he returns in power. Because remember, Jesus is returning in power. And when he does, there will be nobody who can say they're not believers. Reconcile to himself all things. Some people have taken this to mean that everybody's going to be saved. That's not what it means. What it means is we are going to all bow the knee. You can bow it now or you can bow it then. Bowing it then, you submit, but there is repercussions. Bowing it now, you submit, and there's reward. And the reward is relationship with him. All evil, according to the Bible, will be excluded from heaven. All wickedness banished. All unbelief will be sent and confined in hell. We need to... We need to understand that that is not a popular doctrine in our world today. It's not a popular doctrine in our churches today, but it is what the Bible teaches. So how does Jesus fix this? Like we know he's come, but what, what does it actually say? Verse 20 and 22, the reason we're doing these two together is because it's clear. Verse 20 says, making peace with his blood on the cross, meaning when he died and he shed his blood, that was the method by which we can have peace with God. Verse 22, he has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh by his death. So God's method to save us, to fix it, is death. 2 Corinthians says, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that is, in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against them, 
and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. And once you see this reconciliation message in your Bibles, you'll see it everywhere. Everywhere God is stepping in and saying, I'm going to fix this. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So there's three ways that we reconcile people. So if I have a problem with somebody, somebody else steps in and they, they, they act as a go-between for us to fix our relationship. That person would be the reconciler. That's one way. Another way is I can say to my friend, please forgive me, I messed up. And we would be reconciled. The third way is I can say, I'm going to forgive you. Whether you do anything to make me forgive you, I'm going to forgive you. Well, all three of those that we do don't match what God does here. So what God does, and Paul is very clear of this, God actually goes into the person who has done something wrong and fixes the problem. I mean, that would be such a sweet superpower to have as a human with fellow humans, wouldn't it? To be able to step in and fix what you think is wrong with that person? It doesn't work. I have three kids. So, but that's what God does, right? God steps in and goes, we have a problem here, John. I'm going to fix it. Let me work on your heart. Let me fix your heart. Let me give you a new heart. And by doing that, he fixes the relationship. He restores the relationship. No longer are we alienated. No longer do we want our own way. But now we're beginning to be fixed. So Jesus is God. We are wretched. Jesus came to fix us. So what? Great. I believe that. Done. But there's more. So what does this mean for us right now? So if you've gotten all this other stuff and you're like, okay, I've heard sermons like this and they've always been better than yours, now pay attention because this is when it actually gets down to it. This is what it means for us. We are now in Christ, perfect in God's eyes. From that point on, from the point that you had submitted to Christ, you are now in God's eyes perfect and then he is going to make you perfect either as close as you can get in this lifetime or by coming back and taking us up to heaven and giving us those new perfect bodies. We are going to be made perfect. And right now, we're viewed as perfect. Verse 22 again. He has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order. So this is telling us the reason he did it. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So why did he do it? Why did Jesus come to die? He came to die so that he could show us to God as holy, blameless, and without reproach. He takes absolute sinless, absolute or sinful, and absolute blameworthy and turns it into holy, sinless, blameless. Look at these three changes that he says happens to us. We are holy in his sight. Holy just simply means set apart. It's something that's put aside for God. Set apart for God. This is the relationship that we have. Jesus' perfect life is credited to us. And this is justification, being made right with God. So remember how I talked about Jesus is the only righteous one, the rightness with God? This brings us rightness with God. And notice it says, in his sight. It doesn't say you're holy now, right? We know that we're not holy. We're still messes, but we are in process. But it says, in God's eyes, he sees us as what we are going to be because right now he sees 
Christ in us. Without blemish means no defect. The sacrifices in the temple had to be perfect. They had to be perfect spotless lambs. If they had any defect or blemish, they weren't allowed to be sacrificed. So we have become like the pure spotless lamb. He is perfect and our imperfections are now melted away and God sees him in our place. And then finally, free from accusation. You remember when Jesus was was being tried by Pontius Pilate, they couldn't even get their accusations right because there was nothing that they could say against him that he had done. Same goes for us when we are in Christ. The things that we have done are no longer held against us. So we're holy, we're blameless, without blemish, blemish, without accusation. Sounds a lot like Jesus. We want to get to where a person looks at us and they go, is that Jesus? Oh, nope, it's John. It's the way it should be. They should see Jesus in us because that's the way God sees us. So the results of these reconciliation is we are, we are blameless, we are without blemish, we're purified. This is the same language that was used in the Old Testament to describe the animals. And, and, and there's an Old Testament connection here that I want you to see. See, when man and woman were made in the Garden of Eden, that was the first temple. Because it was the place where God's presence resided on earth. And Adam and Eve were there. And they enjoyed that presence until they sinned. And when they sinned, God said, you got to get out of my presence. I'm too pure for you. If you're by me and you have even a microscopic drop of sin, it will destroy you. And so he bars them from the garden. And praise be to God, that means that we die someday. We don't have to live forever in our sin. That was God's mercy on the entire human race. So he bars them out. And then God chooses Israel and he creates this temple. And in the temple, which is modeled after the Garden of Eden, look at the description. There's all sorts of, anybody ever wonder why there were trees and branches and all these flowery things on the inside of the temple? It's Because it's the garden again. And so in the middle of the temple called the Holiest of Holies is where God's presence would reside. And only one time a year, would the high priest go in and offer sacrifices for the entire nation. And when he did this, he had to make sure he was all caught up on confessing his sins. Because if he went into God's presence and he didn't, the sound they would hear would not be the sprinkling of the blood, it would be the thud of the priest hitting the floor. And so God, is, we cannot be in his presence without our sins being removed. And this this being able to have access, what happens at Jesus' death? What happens to that temple? The curtain is ripped from top to bottom so that, one, nobody thinks somebody just went in and did it, and two, to say the way is open because of Christ's sacrifice. But there's even more than that. Not only are we, we taken into Christ and we now can have relationship with God, but just like a doctor who goes to a mortally ill patient and says, you know what, I have a cure for this disease. Take this pill and you're cured. The person takes the pill. Tim, are, are they going to be better like that? Nope. Not, not usually. Usually it takes time, right? And so what ends up happening is this person is, yes, they're cured, but they're not feeling it yet. And that's the Christian life. From the moment Christ comes into our lives, we are cured. We are made right. We have the rightness to be able to reach and be in relationship with God, but we're not 100% there yet. And so as followers of Christ, we want to continue growing and looking more like Christ. 
Not only are we in Christ to be seen as God by God as holy, perfect, and righteous, we are made to have this continual believing and receiving that. We receive the cure over and over again. We feel it, and it wells up in us so that we become springs of living water, that we can be gospeling to everybody. But don't take my word for it. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. We need to understand the wording here. Paul's not saying, well, you're going to go to heaven, but only if you keep doing these things. That's not what Paul's saying. The wording is, is, is hard because the Greek has got a bunch of extra words there. But basically what he's saying is, if you stand firm, and I know you're going to stand firm because you believe the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I know you're going to make it because you believe the gospel. Now notice, and, and the English is weird this way. Notice that I said you believe the gospel. Not believed, but believe the gospel. That means actively right now believing it. See, Paul wants us to understand, and this, this whole verse is about you need to continue to believe the gospel. It is what saves you today. It's what saved you when you first believed, but it's what you believe and what you go with now. The em emphasis is on the expectation of who we have our faith in, not what we do with our faith. You haven't grabbed onto the gospel and have it as a garnish. Instead, you've grabbed onto it like a life preserver and you're holding on until Jesus comes to get you. Paul's argument is about dependence. And look at it. He's, he has two present tense and two past tense, and it creates a sandwich. So the present tense is continue in your faith and not shifting. Those are the things that you have to do right now. In the middle is the stable and the steadfast. So what he's saying is, he's saying that the Christian journey, it, it's, it's a continuous journey, and that we make progress by continuing in the same direction but we do that by focusing on the foundation. The reason we're spending these, these days focusing even more on the gospel is we get away from that. We like to go and add other things. Oh, I, it means I have to go do this. What did the pastor say? I have to go do that. No, I'm not saying you got to go do anything. I'm saying believe, believe, lean in, press in on the gospel. Because it's what makes life the life that you're going to be living for all of eternity. Right here and right now. And we're going to see this as we continue. Really, this, this gospel series that we're on is going to build on itself. And it's going to build in our life groups. And so this week, really, all I'm doing is I want you to understand who you are in Christ, in the gospel right now. Next week, we're going to start talking about how to preach the gospel to yourself and how to get from, okay, who am I right now? What does that mean for my life? We're going to spend a lot of time with that. And then lastly, we're going to look at how do we preach the gospel to each other? Because guess what? A lot of times we're terrible preachers to ourselves. We believe the lies of the enemy. And so this is a process, but we got to get this starting place. we got to get that he starts us and he ends us and he maintains us right here and right now. This idea of not shifting we see in verse 23 is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. He built it on the rock. If you're built on the rock, you're there. You're not leaving the rock. That's what Paul's talking about. Look at John 3.16 for more confirmation. You all know this. This is a verse that you memorize early, early on, and we've all got it in King James, New King James, NIV, whatever. So we muddle through it, but we get the main point, which is, for God so loved the world that he sent his only, one and only son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Not believed in him, but believes in him. That's an infinite. It always believes in him. Eternal life, real life, believing in it. You know, the sun has come out here in Oregon, so that means people have come out here in Oregon, and we really can't get enough of the sun, can we? Yesterday, I ran uh, with a buddy of mine. He wants me to do a half marathon, and so I said yes. Um, I'm not sure what was wrong with me. But we ran through Gladstone, and I'm pretty sure about half of Gladstone was out, outside yesterday morning. It reminds me of in San Francisco. If you've ever been to San Francisco and you've gone down by the piers, there's a famous pier. It's called Pier 39. And it's famous not for shops. It's famous for sea lions. And these sea lions, they cannot get enough of the sun. They come out and they literally lay and sun themselves. They bask in the sun nonstop. They cannot get enough of it. So much so that the city of San Francisco says, it's your pier now. We're not going to try to kick you off of there. Because they had to fight them to try to get them off, and it didn't work. This is where we have to be with the gospel. Not saying you got to look like sea lions, but I'm saying you've got to bask in it. It has got to be something that affects everything you do in order for you to really get it. In order for you to get the life that is promised to you, to get the rewards, to get the Lord. See, ultimately the gospel is about bringing us to God and fixing that relationship. We get God. He's not off in the universe doing something else. He's right here with us. This makes it good news. The gospel is not an add-on to our life. It's our life. So the last thing we're going to look at is why is this good news? And the final thing I'll tell you is the Bible, what the Bible promises becomes ours in Christ. See, the gospel brings us forgiveness, yes. The gospel brings us justification, yes. The gospel brings us escape from hell. It brings us life and health and wealth, and it brings us enjoyment in this life. But if it does not bring us to God, it's not the gospel. The gospel is we are brought to God. We sing songs about all the the things that happen when we're brought to God, but don't miss out that every single one of these is you've got to come to God first. You've got to have that relationship fixed. We think back to that temple. We cannot go near God. We cannot go into his presence because we are not right with him. But the Bible says Jesus was right, and we can now enter into the holy place if it still was around. But then the Apostle Paul brings us another wrinkle here through the Holy Spirit. He says, don't you know that you are the temple? So it used to be we could hang out with God in the Garden of Eden. Then we ruined that by sinning. And then it was the temple, which we could kind of get into his presence. And then Jesus came, fixed the divide, and not, oh, there's a temple somewhere where we go and visit God. No, God brought himself to live in each of us in our hearts, because our hearts are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple of God. Talk about fixing it. He didn't just fix it. He went above and beyond and made it better than it was before. I love that. But there's even more than that. Not only does he come and live, with, live in us, 
But he also says, all of my promises and all of the things I said about Christ are all now found in you. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God, all the things that he says, this is for you, are now yes to us. We are into his family. The, the way that God responds to Jesus is the way he's going to respond to us now. So every sinner who comes to God in Christ with all his needs finds God coming to him in Christ with all his promises. I love that. When a sinful person meets the holy God in Christ, what he hears is, yes, yes, do you love me, God? Yes, will you forgive me, God? Yes, do you accept me, God? Yes, will you change me? Yes, do you have, will you give me power to serve you? Yes, will you keep me? Yes, will you show me your glory? Yes, will you come and get me? Yes. It does not, if this does not stop you and make you want to just bask in this, I don't know what will. All the work and character of Jesus, all the promises of God are ours in Christ. The entire life changes when you see it rightly. So we need, to, we need to allow that to be our identity. We need to start seeing the world through that lens. And over the next five weeks, we're going to work really hard at that and help point you in that direction. But ultimately, it's between you and the Lord. Are you going to take that reconciliation today or are you going to still want it to be your show and your thing? And God's not saying yes to you there. So I ask that you would, you would consider that and take it to the Lord now as we bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, we need more of you, Lord. We need more of you in all that we do. We need to, to learn to bask and to, to sit and rest and relax in your gospel, Lord, that it would affect us and change how we see ourselves. Our identity is not found in in what we do or how holy we are compared to someone else, but our identity is found in Christ. You did all the work. We receive all the reward. And Lord, we just praise you for that. Help us to not move past your word, your gospel, the good news that you have fixed things with us. Lord, I pray that you would get us excited for the gospel and excited for what this means for our lives when we can actually see real change in our lives. Lord, thank you for sending your son to die in our place. In your name, amen.